It has been said that to have a child is to decide forever to have a piece of your heart go walking around outside of your body. My wife and I, we recently had our fourth beautiful daughter. They're sitting right back there. Two months ago. So now I have four pieces of my heart walking around outside of my body. Before I had kids, I could not have imagined that someone so tiny could produce in me so much joy and fear. Having kids has caused me to experience emotions that I did not previously have a category for. I have been filled with intense joy and love on one end of the spectrum and intense vulnerability and fear on the other end of the spectrum. As a parent, we have no greater joy than to see our kids walking in the truth and no greater fear that our kids would reject to have a relationship with Jesus. The terrifying reality is that we as parents have no power to change our kids' hearts to know and love Jesus. Although we have no power to change our kids' hearts, we are called to show our kids what loving God looks like and to lead them to love and follow Jesus. Our church is full of growing young families. We launched a little less than two years ago, and since that time, my wife and I counted 17 new babies that have been born, and there's four more babies that are being knit together in their mother's wombs right now. Amy Awasom, I don't see the Awasoms. They were due on Thursday, um, so they're about to have another baby. That number is about to be 18. The text we're diving into today is specifically speaking to parents discipling their children, but it's also speaking to all of us. Even though some of you do not have children right now, some of you will someday, and all of us have kids in our lives that we care deeply about and we desperately want to know and love Jesus. Some of you are aunts and uncles, some of you are grandparents, and some of you have really good friends with young children. We say all the time at Vertical that church isn't like a family, it is a family, and if that's true, then all of us have a role to play in teaching the next generation to know and love Jesus. I'd like you all to close your eyes for a little bit, for about 30 seconds, and picture in your mind someone who God has called you to make a disciple of. This could be your own children, this could be a niece or nephew, could be a grandchild, could be a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, like Petey talked about last week. For the rest of this message, when I am speaking specifically to parents discipling their kids, I want you to picture this person that's in your mind. Open up your eyes and open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 4. If you're there, say square. A couple people are there. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way 
and when you lie down, and when you rise. Verses 4 to 6 in this passage are speaking about our personal relationship with God. It's not until verse 7 that Moses gives the command for us to teach our children to love and follow God. Before we are called to make disciples, we're first called to become a disciple. We can't pass on what we don't possess. Notice in your Bibles, the first word in verse 4 is here. The Hebrew word for here is shema, which can be translated to focus on or to pay attention to. We live in a world of endless distractions, and paying attention to one thing takes considerable effort. There have been studies that have shown that the average attention span today is about eight seconds. To put that in perspective, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. I'm an elementary fire teacher, and in recent years, I've had to give, I've had to adjust my teaching to give shorter pieces of information in less time because I know if I talk too long, students' eyes will glaze over and I will lose their attention. One thing I do to get students' attention back if it's fading or I've lost it completely is by saying, if you can hear me, do this. Practice with me. If you can hear me, do this. Do this. Do this. This causes students to look up and to give me their full attention. You tend to listen more intently and closely to people that you look up to. If you played basketball for the Chicago Bulls in the mid-90s and a rookie gave you some advice on how you could become a better basketball player, you might shrug it off and say, what does he know? But if Michael Jordan gave you advice on how you could become a better basketball player, you would hang on his every word, you would give him your full and undivided attention, and you'd probably act on his advice. How much more should we listen to our great God who is all-wise, all-powerful, and all-loving? A major test of how well we listen is how we respond. You didn't really listen if you didn't respond to what you heard. If my wife asked me to get peanut butter from Aldi with no sugar, and I get the jar with sugar that's double the size, half the price, and it tastes way better, I might have heard her, I might have even written it down on the list, but I didn't really listen. True listening involves action. Interestingly, in ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey. The word Shema means not only to listen, but also to act on what you heard. True listening involves action. The degree to which you listen to God and obey his commands reveals how much you love him. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commands. In verse 5, we hear what is so important that we need to listen to and give our full attention to. Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest commandment, quoted this next verse, Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Before Moses commands us to love the Lord in verse 5, he highlights how the Lord is one in verse 4. Notice in your Bibles how the word Lord is in all capital letters. 
Whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's referring to God's personal name, which is Yahweh. Yahweh means I am. When God first revealed his name to Moses in Exodus 3, he repeated it twice, saying, I am who I am. God alone always was and always will be. He alone is not dependent on anything or anyone. He alone never changes. He alone is the creator and the sustainer of everything. He alone is perfect. He alone is the sole source of everything that is beautiful, lovely, and worthy of praise. He alone is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And he alone is worthy of all of our love. Verse 5 tells us three ways that we are called to love God. The first way is to love God with all of your heart. Ancient Israelites had no concept of the brain. They thought that all intellectual activity happened in the heart. So this means to love God with all of your heart means to love him with all of your thoughts, with all of your emotions, and with all of your will. The second way we are called to love God is with all of your soul. The Hebrew word for soul is nephesh, and its basic meaning is throat, but it can also refer to your whole body or your whole person. In the Bible, people don't just have a nephesh, they are a nephesh. Psalm 42, David says, As the deer pants for water, so my nephesh pants for you. My nephesh thirsts for the living God. Physical thirst in this verse is a metaphor for how our whole body longs to know and love God. Loving God with all of our soul means loving God with our whole body and being. The third way in this verse that we are to love God is with all of our might. The Hebrew word for might is meod, and it's actually an adverb meaning very or much. So translated literally, this verse would say to love God with all of your veriness or your muchness. Which sounds a little weird, but that's what it means. When meod is translated from Hebrew into Greek, the word dunamis, which means strength, is used. But when it's translated into Aramaic, the word for wealth is used. The command to love God with all of your might is a command to love him with everything at your disposal. All of your money, all of your time, all of your efforts, all of your resources, all of your everything. Here in verse 5, Moses piles on relatively similar terms, heart, soul, and might, to emphasize how all-encompassing our love for God should be. These three phrases, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, do not express three different spheres of life, but rather combine together to show how complete and total our love for God should be. Notice the repetition of the word all. Moses could have said, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and that would have made sense, but he didn't do that. Instead, he repeats the word all in every phrase to emphasize how much we are to love God. We are not called to love God with some of our heart or even with most of our heart, but with all of our heart. We are called to love God with everything that we are and with everything that we have. 
this brings us face to face with an unsettling and uncomfortable reality. Oftentimes we don't. How can I teach my children to love God when I don't? We can't pass on what we don't possess. My thoughts are often consumed with myself. I am quick to forget the gospel, and I'm prone to wander away from God. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So how do I love God with all of my heart when my heart is desperately sick? If someone has a terminal heart disease that will lead to death, they don't need to eat better, they don't need to exercise more, they need a heart transplant. In order to love God with all of our heart, there's not a seven-step plan we can follow to heal our heart. There's a one-step plan. We need a new heart. Thankfully, Moses gives us the solution to our problem of having a desperately sick heart later in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. God knows that our hearts were unable to love him, so he cut away the callous and the dead parts of our heart in order to give us a new heart and make it possible for us to love him with all of ourselves. We just sang about how our heart needs a surgeon, and when we run to the Father, our heart has found a surgeon. So as believers in Jesus, we have been given a new heart that is able to love him with all of ourselves. But oftentimes we don't. Who among us can sit honestly say that they love God with all of themselves, all of the time. So what do you do while living in the already reality of having a new heart in Christ that's able to love him, but also the not yet reality of having a Romans 7 body of sin and death? C.S. Lewis felt this same tension and has some good advice and counsel for us today. He writes in Mere Christianity, what do we do when we don't have warm feelings of delight or affection for God. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I love God, what would I do? When you find the answer, go and do it. Even though the feelings may not be there, we do the deeds and wonder of wonders, we often find that God in his pretense, in his mercy, turns our pretense into reality. We behave as sons of God and therefore find that the affections of Christ begin to grow in us. What does this look like in your life? What are some things that you do when your love for Jesus is cold and when God feels distant? For me, it's getting out of bed at least 30 minutes before my kids to meet with God when all I want to do is hit the snooze button. It's getting out of my comfort zone to share the gospel with strangers and steer the conversation towards the gospel with friends when all I want to do is talk about sports and fantasy football right now. It's confessing my sin in front of my kids and asking for forgiveness when all my flesh wants to do is shift the blame, get defensive, and sweep the sin under the rug. 
our worship team has a saying, hands before heart. When we worship God with our hands, even when our hearts are numb, oftentimes we find that God, in his mercy, turns our pretense into reality, and our love for God is kindled. The next time you're feeling that your love for God is cold, ask yourself, if I love God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my strength, what would I do? Then go and do it. And find that wonder of wonders, oftentimes your cold heart has been kindled to love him. Once our cold heart has been kindled to love God more, the natural response is to lead others to love him. We want to pass on what we do possess. See it in verse 6 and 7. Moses says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. The things we think about that are on our heart are the things we naturally talk about with others. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We naturally talk about the things that we love. We just can't help it. I'm usually not a huge fan of musicals. Sometimes I watch them with my wife so that I can watch, pick the next movie. Um, but recently we watched Hamilton, and I was absolutely blown away by how much I loved it. For the next week, I couldn't get the songs out of my head, and I found myself naturally bringing Hamilton into every conversation for the next week. We talk about the things that we love. When you are consumed with love for God and he is on the front of your mind, it's only natural that he will also be on the tip of your tongue. As we grow in loving God with our everything, we find it easier and easier to weave him into conversation. Not only do you talk about what you love, but you also love what you talk about. I don't think anything stirs my affections for Jesus more than talking about how the gospel has changed my life. When you talk about Jesus, you are throwing gasoline on the fire of your love for him. On the flip side, when I don't talk about Jesus and I shrink back from sharing the gospel out of fear of being rejected and worrying way too much about what people think of me, I feel an increased distance from Jesus and my love for him often fades. Our love for God overflows into our speaking about him and our speaking about him increases our love for him. Words are not the only way that we teach our children to love and follow God. We not only tell our kids how to follow Jesus, we also show them. Discipleship isn't just taught, it's also caught. Kids are really good at spotting hypocrisy. They have like a sixth sense. They're better than anybody I know. If my actions don't line up with my words, my daughters are quick to notice. We recently taught, no, it was like two years ago, but that's recent, I guess, our oldest daughter to not interrupt others. If you know kids, they're always interrupting. I'm a teacher, and the kids come up to me all the time and ask questions, and I have to ignore them because I'm in the middle of a conversation. But we recently taught our oldest daughter not to interrupt and wait for the pause. Before I knew it, she was letting me know every time I interrupted others and didn't wait for the pause. 
If I tell my girls that Jesus is of first importance and my greatest treasure, but then I get more excited about the Vikings scoring a touchdown on Sunday than singing about the victory of the cross, they will notice. Our kids are watching us and are quick to pick up on what is most important to us. If you don't have kids, others are watching you and will notice what is most important to you. We are all making disciples of something. The question is not whether or not you're making a disciple, but what are you making a disciple of? If we prioritize sports or academics or entertainment, we are making disciples of those things. If whenever there's a conflict between our kids' sporting event and church, and we choose sports every time, we are making a disciple of athletics. If we're more focused on having our kids excel in school than we are teaching them how to study and apply the Bible, we are making a disciple of academics. If we are always using screens to distract our kids, we are making a disciple of entertainment and teaching our kids to be consumers. Sports, school, entertainment, you fill in the blank. These are all really good things. They just make really crummy gods. We are all making disciples. Even if you don't have kids, you are making disciples. The question isn't whether or not you're making disciples, but what are you making disciples of? If we want to make disciples of Jesus who love God with their everything, verse 7 tells us that we need to see it in the text. Teach them diligently. If we are not diligently teaching our kids to follow Jesus, they will inevitably be drifting. No one drifts towards holiness. No one drifts towards loving others sacrificially. No one drifts towards loving God with their everything. Growing up, we would go to Florida a couple times a year to visit my grandparents. One of my favorite parts of every trip was swimming in the ocean. When we'd go to the ocean, I would run full speed into a massive wave, imagining that I was tackling that wave. I'd get crushed, I'd catch my, catch my breath, and then I'd repeat that over and over. After a couple minutes, I'd look back at the shore, and I couldn't recognize where I was. Within minutes, I had drifted 50 to 100 yards away from where I was by the strong currents of the ocean. The currents of our culture are just as strong as the currents of the ocean. If we don't teach our children diligently to love God and to follow Jesus, they will be swept away by the strong cultural currents of individualism, materialism, and self-obsession. These are just three of the many currents. The cultural current of individualism is pulling our kids towards believing the lie that they should give in to all of their desires. We need to diligently teach our kids that their desires are often broken and lead to death and destruction. But when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our hearts. We need new desires. The cultural current of materialism is pulling our kids towards believing the lie that their value and worth is found in what they possess. We need to diligently teach our kids that life is not found in the abundance of possessions, but in the abundance of Jesus' lavish love on them. With Jesus, even when we have nothing, we possess everything. 
the cultural current of self-obsession is pulling our kids towards believing the lie that their worth is found in how they look and what other people think of them and how many likes they get on social media. We need to diligently teach our kids how God views them, what God thinks about them, and how God has sealed his love for them by the blood of Jesus. Disciple-making takes diligence. Verse 7 gives us four times when you are to teach your children diligently to love God and to follow Jesus. Moses tells us to talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. These are all things that we're already doing anyway every day. Anyone do any walking or driving today? Anyone sit in their house? All of us woke up this morning, and tonight, hopefully all of us are going to go to bed. These are all things that we already do. This verse doesn't add more to our plate, but tells us to be intentional and to repurpose the time that we already have doing the things that we already do. The first time you're to teach your children diligently is when you sit in your house. This means instead of scrolling on our phones while our kids are playing right in front of us, this verse tells us to be present, to press in, and to point our kids to Jesus whenever possible. Instead of rushing through dinner, this verse is telling us to slow down. Ask questions at dinner that get at your kids' hearts. Our family tries to, we don't always do this, but we try to ask um, our kids, what was your favorite part of the day, and then what was something that was hard today? And we go around the table. This not only um, helps everyone in the family to feel heard and known, but it's also a great chance for us to do our greatest parenting. Our greatest parenting is often in owning our sin and owning our weaknesses. And it shows our kids that daddy and mommy need Jesus too. The second time you are to teach your children to love and follow Jesus is when you walk by the way. Most of you don't, didn't walk to get here this morning, but you did drive. I don't think there's a better time to have meaningful conversations with our kids than while driving. They are stuck in the car with us, and they can't escape. Vertical Church, let's strive to make car time conversation time. The next time you're in the car with someone, resist the urge to turn up the music or check your phone and turn to the person you're present with to seek to have a meaningful conversation. The third time you're to talk to your kids about how to follow Jesus is when you lie down. One of the most stressful times of the day is often bedtime for us as parents. Our kids are usually emotional and we are almost exhausted. Almost always exhausted. We're not almost exhausted. We are exhausted. We want bedtime to be short and sweet, but our kids are masters of drawing it out so it takes as long as possible. Many times when we close the door and take a breath, we hear the pitter-patter of footsteps, and someone needs to go to the bathroom for the third time, someone needs to get another drink of water, and someone can't sleep because they lost their favorite stuffed animal. 
Jim Gaffigan says, bedtime is like a reverse hostage situation. <laughs> Parents say, we'll give you whatever you want, just stay in there. We urgently want our kids to go to bed so that we can have some time to ourselves. But often in our urgency, we miss precious opportunities to pour into our kids and cultivate a love for God in them. Dwight D. Eisenhower once said, what is important is seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important. My kids usually ask the best questions right before bed. This is way more important than 15 more minutes of me time. My oldest daughter loves to sing long songs to Jesus right before bed. This is way more important than five more minutes to myself. The fourth time you are to teach your children to follow Jesus is when you rise. If I don't wake up at least 30 minutes before my kids to meet with God in his word and in prayer, there's a good chance I'll need to repent and ask for forgiveness before breakfast for getting frustrated and impatient for something I shouldn't have gotten frustrated about. For God's love to overflow through me and onto my kids, I need to be filled every morning with his fullness. I need new mercies every single morning. I need to be filled with his grace so that I can give his grace to my family. I can't pass on what I don't possess. Notice in verse 7 how Moses pairs sitting with its opposite term, walking. He pairs lying down at night with its opposite term of rising in the morning. These pairs of expressions are called mirisms and don't just refer to the action specified, but everything in between the actions. Another example of a mirrorism that I like is the gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. In other words, the gospel is all of the Christian life. We never graduate from the gospel. So when are we called to love, to lead our children to love God? Not just Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. The Christian life is not meant to be compartmentalized. This verse is saying we are called to make disciples of Jesus every day, at all times of the day, in whatever activities that we're doing. But what if I'm constantly and consistently talking to my kids and my coworkers and my friends about the gospel, but I don't see any noticeable change in them? Be patient and press on. The road to Christian maturity is not a sprint, it's a marathon. We are being transformed into Jesus' image from one degree of glory to another. Steady, small chops with an axe over time will bring down a giant redwood tree. However, in all of our disciple-making efforts, we are totally dependent for God to do the work in our kids' hearts that only he can do. We can plant and water gospel seeds in our kids' lives with all of the effort and energy that we can muster, but we are totally dependent on God to give the growth. This week, let's diligently teach others to love God and follow Jesus and desperately pray for God to give the growth.